Morning, church. Good to see everybody here. If darkness and fear, if feeling overwhelmed is something you're struggling with, you're facing right now, and the invitation to be still is an invitation that is, um, is hard, but good for you. Uh, at the end of service, Chuck and Aaron will be up front, and they would love to pray with you. I know in a room this size, I've already had the opportunity to pray with some folks this morning. There are heavy burdens. We bring heavy burdens often with us uh, to worship, appropriately so. We need to be reminded of God's goodness. And so if you're carrying burdens this morning, Chuck or Aaron would love to pray with you. So we'll close our service, as is our habit. A couple songs we'll sing together in a, in a little while, and they'll be down front to pray with you. If you're a guest, glad you're here. Hope you feel quickly at home. I'd love to meet you. Love to shake your hand, get to know you. I'll be down front at the end of service, your left, my right. And uh, if you're so inclined, I'd love to, to meet you. We're in Deuteronomy chapter 6 this morning. Open there in your copy of the scripture. Turn with me there. It's the fifth book in the Bible. If you're looking for it, it should be fairly easy to find. Deuteronomy chapter 6. Like many of you, I grew up reciting the Pledge of Allegiance. It's on the screen will be familiar to many folks. Every morning at the beginning of school, as a young child, we'd stand and recite it. Children across the nation still do that. How many of us grew up doing that? Yeah, good. It's a short paragraph, just 31 words. The goal of which is to affirm America's, or some of America's values, namely, in this instance, that liberty and justice are in fact for all people in our nation. Reciting the pledge is aimed at also cultivating unity, right? One nation, as it says, under God. The indivisibility of which would have been no small matter to say, to declare. This pledge was recited for the first time in the year 1892. If you know American history, that's almost 30 years, 27 years after the end of the Civil War. So to talk about the indivisibility of our nation, no small matter. As valuable as the pledge is nationally, my point is not a political one this morning. My goal in mentioning the pledge is to highlight the role that this morning's passage would have played, still plays, in the nation of Israel. This morning we're looking at the ancient equivalent of America's Pledge of Allegiance. That is a declaration that summarizes some of Israel's most cherished beliefs. Namely, that the Lord is our God, that the Lord is one, that the Lord alone is our God. These two short verses, just 30 words total, have been recited daily by committed Jews, both twice daily, in fact, morning and evening, for thousands of years. These 30 words have been said for thousands of years. They're on the screen. Would you stand with me? We'll say them together. Together, It's Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. We'll read them aloud together. I'll lead us out. You ready? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God. The Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. You may be seated. Well done. Those two verses, some of the most recited words in the history of the world. 
certainly much more often recited than America's Pledge of Allegiance, generation after generation after generation of Jews recite these words morning and evening. Jesus, our Savior, would have started his day and ended his day with these words. I wonder if we might ought to add them to our daily prayers. These two verses are known as the Shema, which is the transliteration of a Hebrew word that means hear. Hear, O Israel. These verses function as both a declaration of praise. The Lord is our God. The Lord alone is our God. The Lord is one. It's also a call to action. This is who God is and respond this way. Love him with all that you have. If you've been with us over the last several weeks, then you know we're slowly making our way through each of the Ten Commandments. We spent, I think, 11, 12 weeks in Deuteronomy chapter 5 going uh, commandment by commandment through the Ten Commandments. The book of Deuteronomy is actually the second time that Moses offers the Ten Commandments to the Israelites. This time in Deuteronomy, they stand on the banks of the Jordan River. They look across into the Promised Land, so to speak. They're getting ready to receive God's inheritance, this land that for generations they've been told about, first promise to Abraham, then Isaac, then Jacob. Then Moses shows up to lead them out of Egyptian slavery into the land. In preparation for entering the promised land, Moses revisits the law of God, not wanting them to revisit the sin patterns of their parents who had died out in the wilderness. The first time Moses offers the commandments to the Israelites, they had just come out of Egyptian slavery. They crossed through the Red Sea on dry land. They turned and watched as Egypt's army is overwhelmed by the walls of the sea collapsing in on them. And then they go to the base of Mount Sinai. Moses goes up on the mountain. He comes down with the stone tablets. He finds them worshiping idols and has to go up and get another set of commandments because he breaks those in anger. On the commandments are the, the Decalogue, these ten words, these ten directives from God. Moses doesn't want this second generation of Israelites to commit the sins that the first generation had committed. And so he recites to them and charges them again to keep the law. He reminds them of God's grace towards them, God's mercy towards them, and he calls them to love the Lord their God with all their heart and with all their soul and with all their strength. How do we do that? How do we love God with everything that we have? We do it by keeping the Ten Commandments. We do it by embracing God's Word, hearing God's Word, and responding in obedience to God's word. Hear, O Israel, which is different than listen. It doesn't simply mean let the the sound waves of Moses' words wash over your ears. No, it's not just listen, it's hear, biblically speaking. We can all understand that hearing is different than listening. 
The command to hear, O Israel, is a directive to let these words sink into the soil of their soul and provoke a response. Hearing and doing, biblically, are synonymous. They're one and the same. They're two sides, albeit of the same coin. If we're truly hearing, then we're doing. If we're doing what the Lord commands, then we've truly heard him. James, who was the half-brother of Jesus and the author of the New Testament book that bears his name, famously picks up on this reality in the first chapter of his letter to some persecuted Christians. If you've read the book of James, you've, you've read this before. Look at what he wrote. Don't merely listen. In other words, hear. Hear, O Christian. Don't just listen, really hear. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror. We all spent some time in front of a mirror, I hope, this morning. We looked in the mirror, we took action accordingly, hopefully. Hopefully we didn't simply look into the mirror and say, walk away. We did something based on what we saw. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like and does nothing about it, in other words. Takes no action, but whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, doing it, not forgetting what they had heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. The law of the Lord is perfect, James says. And he didn't come up with that. He stole that from the psalmist. The law of the Lord is perfect. James says it brings freedom. That's really good news. I know myself in the community I'm a part of well enough to know you're here this morning in part because you want more freedom. Freedom from worry, anxiety, fears. Just this morning, prayed with enough folks in, during, before, after worship to know we want more freedom. Blessed, James says. Blessed means happy. Happy are those who do what the law commands. We'd all like to be happier and freer. James says that those who look into the mirror, imagine the law of God being held up in front of your face, the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue, and you look, you take no action. Blessed, happy, freer are the folks who look and act accordingly. Who live according to what is revealed in the law about who they are, about who God is. Blessed. Again, we're here this morning because we want to be blessed. We want to live freer. That means we must not merely listen. We must hear. Which means we must do what the law directs. Don't be deceived, James warns. Listening and hearing are not the same. We know we've heard if we do. If we do, we know that we've heard. So what was it that Israel was to hear? 
that would result in doing. Hear the Shema, right? Hear, O Israel. What are they to hear? Love, I'm sorry, <laughs> the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. That's what they're to hear. This declaration. What are they to do after? They're to love. Why is loving God with everything that we have the appropriate response to what they heard, to what we're hearing this morning? Why is loving the appropriate response, loving God? To answer that question, we need to remember the context in which the words are spoken. The context is that of polytheism. Poly means many, theism gods, many gods. The context in which Moses says, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one, the context is there are actually many gods being worshipped in the surrounding nations. The context is there are, there, have, there are many gods presented as having authority in requiring our response. For example, Egypt. Egypt had gods that are sun gods and moon gods, gods of the Nile, gods of the fish. That's why the plagues were so significant, the ten plagues. Egypt, most of those plagues were represented by one or some of Egypt's gods. God is claiming authority over Egypt when he sends those plagues. He's saying, no, the sun and the moon and the Nile, they aren't, in fact, gods. He alone is God. Well, Israel spent 400 years in Egypt. They were surrounded by polytheism. And then they're led out of Egypt and they're led into the, the land of the Canaanites. Well, Moab and Amnon, right? They had their own gods, these nations, the Hittites, the Canaanites. They had gods, gods like Chemosh, Molech, Baal. Molech required that children be sacrificed by fire. What are they to hear? They're to hear the Lord is their God. The Lord is one. There's one God. The Lord alone is their God. The Canaanite gods are not their gods. The Egyptian gods are not their gods. Folks, it does us well if we let the truth of that wash over our souls this morning because we're tempted to give our heart in our soul, in our strength, to a lot of things besides the Lord. Israel's reality was different than the Egyptian reality. Israel's reality was different than the Canaanite reality. How was it different? Well, the Lord had pursued Father Abraham, the patriarch of the nation, he was a moon worshiper, if you read closely in the book of Joshua. Abraham was in Ur of, he was Abram at that time, before his name was changed. He was in Ur of the Chaldeans, and he was, he was a polytheist when the Lord shows up and reveals himself to Abraham and says, leave this land and your family and come to this land that I'll give to you and your descendants and I'll make them as numerous as the stars in the heavens and the sand on the seashore. I'm going to give you lots of descendants. I'm going to give you this land. And he calls Abram to himself. And then Isaac is, meets with the Lord. And then Jacob, they're boys, right? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. And then Jacob's descendants go into Egyptian slavery, right? And they're in Egypt and for 400 years. And then God reveals himself to Moses, the deliverer. God pursues, initiates, 
cares for, delivers, provides for this nation. You may remember Moses is up on the mountain, standing in front of a bush that's on fire but isn't consumed. He's barefoot, and he hears the call of God after the revelation of God. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he wants Moses to go to Egypt. Moses famously asks, who will I say has sent me? What is your name is what he's asking. And God reveals his name as I am, which gets translated in uh, the Torah as Yahweh. In other words, what is your name? He says, I am. He speaks to the eternality of it. And so in our English Bibles, Lord, all capital letters, is, is how they're translating the ancient Hebrew transliteration of the name I am, Yahweh. Yahweh is Lord in our English Bibles. It means I am. It denotes God's eternality. He's the God who has always been, who is, and will be. Tell them I am has sent you. Some Bibles might even note in the margins or in the footnotes that Lord, all caps, is the translation of the tetragrammatron, the four letters Y-H-W-H, Yahweh, I am. Ancient Jews uh, were hesitant to even say this name because they didn't want to take it in vain and break the third commandment. Do not take the name of the Lord in vain. And so they came up with words to to augment the name. They didn't want to say it. They wanted to keep it holy, separate. So God said to Moses, I am. So it could literally be read, the Shema could be literally read, Hear, O Israel, Yahweh is our God. Yahweh is one. Love Yahweh your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. So again, why is loving God with everything we have the appropriate response to what they had heard? Well, what they had heard was a very personal revelation. They had met with the Creator God, the only God, the one God that exists. The God that stands in contrast to the many other false gods of Egypt and Canaan. And he had initiated with them as a nation. He had pursued them and drawn them to himself. He had made them have many descendants. You may remember that Abraham had been, had, didn't have children until God intervened. So God initiated, God pursued, God cared, God delivered, God disciplined them, albeit for 40 years in the wilderness, and now God's going to provide them the promised land. Do you see the difference? Idolatry, idolatry of Egypt and Canaan was a, <laughs> was a response to, well, we're not exactly sure who's in charge. I'm going to give sacrifices to the sun god, the moon god, the Nile god, try to appease their wrath, their anger, it was thought, offer sacrifices. Too often, I think, we're under the impression that the Old Testament sacrificial system was in an effort to appease God, manipulate, coerce, and get from him what Israel wanted. That's not at all what was going on. God had initiated, called them to himself, and given the sacrificial system so that the people could come into his presence, so that sin could be cared for, addressed, and he could have fellowship with them. 
This should sound vaguely familiar to those that are steeped in the New Testament realities of Christ. Christ initiates. He comes to earth. While we were yet sinners, he lays down his life for us so that we can, according to Hebrews, come before the throne of God boldly. He's made a way for us. We don't make a way for ourselves. This is different than polytheism. This is why the appropriate response is that of love, because he first loved us. Polytheism is, if you do this for me, then I'll do that for you. If you love me, I'll love you. No, God has shown his love towards us, towards Israel, towards all those who are trusting in Israel's Messiah, Jesus. God has shown his love towards us and invites us into relationship with him and the appropriate response is that we'd love him with everything we have. Heart, soul, strength. Why the triplicate? Well, ancient literature would present things in triplicate when they wanted to bring a certain emphasis to the action or the attribute. So when it says heart, soul, and strength, it's just saying in totality, completely, a full-throated love, a wholehearted love, we might say. In the book of Revelation, last book in the Bible, the praise of God is sung holy, holy, holy. It's not because God's hard of hearing. The triplicate notes that he is <laughs> distinct, set apart like no other. And so when we're called to love God, the appropriate response to what we've heard, hear, O Israel, hear, O Christian, the Lord is our God. Yahweh is our God. Yahweh is one. He alone is our God. There are no other gods before him. How are we doing with the response of love? Do we struggle to see the difference between Yahweh and all the other gods, whether ancient or modern? I ask because ultimately it was the polytheism of surrounding nations that undermined, uh, theologians would say, that created covenant jeopardy. What put the covenant at risk? The covenant with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David, through Christ? What put the covenant at jeopardy? It was polytheism. It was the people of God giving their heart and their soul and their strength to things other than God. And it's the same today. What places in jeopardy our freedom and happiness, the blessings of the covenant that God's made with us through Israel's Messiah, Jesus. It's polytheism. It's bowing not so much in a suburban context to sun and moon and stars, but bowing to money, sex, children, giving our heart away to things created rather than to the creator. My personal time in scripture, uh, time I'm trying to meet with the Lord, not to prepare to deliver something, but trying to cultivate my relationship with the Lord. I've been uh, reading through Jeremiah. What a dumpster fire. 
Good, I've got your attention. It's polytheism. Israel, so we're in Deuteronomy, but by the time you get to Jeremiah, the prophet's saying you're going to lose your land and you're going to lose Jerusalem and you're going to lose the temple because of these other gods, Baal, Molech, Chemosh. They had adopted these other gods. They had brought, they'd given their strength to them. To whom are we giving our strength, people of God? The Lord is our God. The Lord alone is our God. To whom are we giving our strength? How is our allegiance this morning? Maybe we should add the Shema to morning and evening prayers. Not in an effort to merit God's favor, people of God. We don't love God so that he will love us. We love God because he first loved us. I hope we see the difference. The ancient gods of Egypt and Canaan were being served so that blessings would rain down on them. That's not at all what Scripture's saying. God has moved towards you, wants to bless you, shower you with freedom and joy. The fruit of the Spirit's the Spirit's fruit, right? Love and joy and peace and patience. We want more freedom. He's eager to give it. He calls us to himself. We can, in fact, add the Shema to our daily prayers, reminding ourselves that loving God completely and unreservedly with everything we have is appropriate because through God's care of Israel, he has cared for the Gentiles of the world. Gentile is any non-Jew. I'm assuming that 99% of us are Gentile. Paul summarizes this in the book of Galatians about how we are reaping the benefit of God's care of Israel. Understand then, it's on the screen, verses 7, 8, 9 of Galatians 3. Understand then that those who have faith, and it's a faith in Christ is what the book of Galatians is all about, who have faith in Christ are children of Abraham. If you're trusting in the Savior this morning, Jesus, make no mistake, the Shema is your prayer because you're a child of Abraham. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith in Christ, not faith in themselves, and announced the gospel in advance to Abraham. What is that announcement? He quotes from Genesis, quote, all nations will be blessed through you. The gospel is coming. God's going to bless all the nations through you, Jews and Gentiles alike. Well, where's that blessing come? It comes through Christ, who's a direct descendant. Read the opening of Matthew, read the opening of Luke, the Christmas story, where the lineage of Jesus is traced all the way back to Abraham. So those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Hear, O Christian, Yahweh is your God. Yahweh alone is your God. There are no other gods for us to have. What are you giving your heart, soul, and strength to? How do we make this happen? How do we cultivate the appropriate response? Well, I'll say it this way. What does a full-throated, unreserved, wholehearted love of God, heart, soul, and strength look like? Let's read a little further in Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Yahweh, 
is our God. Yahweh is one. Love Yahweh, your God, with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give to you today are to be on your hearts. Start there. Get the commandments on your heart. Impress them on your kids. How does that happen? Talk about them when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, when you get up. So he's just spent all of Deuteronomy 5 rehearsing the Decalogue. Now he's saying, here's what you do with it. Here's how you cultivate a wholehearted love for God. Tie them as symbols on your hands, bind them on your foreheads, write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. If you have your copy of the scripture open and you're an underliner, I'm an underliner, my Bibles are all marked up. Verses 7, 8, and 9 have a lot of action words. Impress, I would underline it. Talk, underline it. Tie, bind, write, post. Right? Put them on the door frames of your house. I would underline those. These are words clearly meant to indicate that loving is action-oriented. We love God with everything we have when we're acting on it, when our hands are, are active and our feet are mobilized and our mouths are speaking it. That's when we know it's in our heart. These commands are to be acted on individually, familially, and at the community level. Again, there's a triplicate nature here. Individually, they're to be on our hearts. If it, if it hasn't made it into our hearts, it's going to be hard to work it out into our family and into the community with any integrity. Start with it on your hearts. Then work on it familially. If your kids aren't buying it, right, our kids help us uh, with hypocrisy. <laughs> our kids are the ones that alert us to the inconsistencies in our lives most often. Individually on our heart, familially, how? Impress them on your children. How do we do that? Talk about them. Talk about them throughout the day when you sit, when you walk, when you lie down. And then publicly, so individually, familially, then publicly. Tie them as symbols on your hands, on your forehead. Ancient Jews actually did that, phylacteries. They wore the, the scripture of God, the word of God, on their forehead in little boxes. Write them on your doors and the gates of your home. To love God wholeheartedly means to make it a, a personal matter, a familial matter, a community matter. And again, I want to guard here against the notion that we're going to do this so that he loves us. No, we do this because he's already loved us. This is the appropriate response. Christ came for those in this room long before we were even born. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He gave his life for us. This is our appropriate response. The Israelites standing at the Jordan River, hearing... Uh, the, the Deuteronomical uh, recitation of Moses, these sermons of Moses, right? He's reflecting back to them, God has loved you. He's loved Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. He's brought you out of Egypt. Now respond, love the Lord your God. So we don't do this so that he loves us. We do this because he's already loved us perfectly and shown his grace towards us. So, if we're not hearing in other words, if we're not doing, what's the remedy? 
Is it try harder? No. It's cry out to God about the love deficit. Because when we hear that Yahweh is our God, that Yahweh alone is our God, when we hear that clearly, we will respond. In other words, if there's an action deficit, if we're not responding with the law in our hearts and in our homes and publicly, and nobody's responding perfectly, the point to be had here is we all need more of the love of God in our lives. Romans 2, I think it's verse 4. It's the kindness of God that brings us to repentance. It's not the, the willpower of humanity, of mankind. No, as the kindness of God washes over us, his love for us, how he's initiated to care for humanity, as that washes over us and we see it clearly, then we respond. And if we're not responding, then it's more of the knowledge of the love of God. In fact, that's what Paul prayed. That the knowledge of the love of God, how, right, Romans 8, wide and deep and high, how that we would know the love of God. And that in fact, nothing can separate us from God's love, he writes in Romans 8. Persecution, famine, sword, peril. We need to know that that love is true, unreserved, real. That's what draws us in to a full-hearted love of him. Let me pray for us toward that end. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. We're about to sing about your goodness and all that you've done for us. I want to pray that it would work its way from our head into our hearts, that it would mobilize us in life. Even now, the sin that we've cultivated this week, I pray we'd see that you love us and that you've offered Christ as a sacrifice for our sins. And our shortcomings as spouses and parents and friends and family members, Lord, let us know that you're not done with us, that you're at work in our lives. And that which overwhelms us, that we're anxious about and fuels some ungodly behavior in our lives that we're fearful of, Lord, let us know that you're greater than all that we face and that nothing will separate us from your love. In Jesus' name, amen.